Hey, this is John Lee Dumas of EO Fire, and you're listening to Talking CFD with Robin Knowles. It's kind of like my show, but for CFD nerds, prepare to ignite. Hey there, CFD people. Welcome back to another in our little insight series where I try to find people that do something with CFD that you might not know about and get them to give us a peek into, into their world. Now, we've got a few listeners to the show. It's not a super massive number. And I reckon that in most cases, there's someone listening that does something pretty similar to you. That is, unless you're today's guest, where there probably aren't that many people worldwide doing what he's doing, and certainly not in our little podcast family. Today, I'm talking with Kurt Smithgall of S2O Design and Engineering in Colorado about using CFD in the design of whitewater parks, or to use a phrase that I stole from him, which I thought sounded ace, we're talking about recreational hydraulics. Welcome to the show, Kurt. Thanks, Robin. Uh, that's a great introduction. I don't think my intro is too far off. I'd bet there aren't many people who do what you do. Could you give us a kind of two-sentence summary of what it is? Sure. I mean, on the, the basic sense, we're just designing river hydraulics or hydraulic jumps in a more engineering term for recreation. So that can be like a kind of like a surf wave like you'd see on the ocean, but it can be in a river or like a, a pump circulating park. So I guess similar things go on for other reasons when they're engineering rivers, but the stuff you do is specifically for recreation. Correct. And it's it's pretty specialized. I mean, designing a hydraulic jump is there's a lot of different physics going on, and it's it's kind of difficult. Yeah, no kidding. Um, so we're talking about the sort of thing that people might kayak or surf or something along those lines. Yeah, I mean, there's a there's a wide range of user groups that actually use the the river feature itself. I mean, we target whitewater kayakers, um, stand up paddleboarders, and then river surfing has kind of been the newest, fatter, hot thing right now. For river recreation. Before we get a bit more into it, do you kayak? I do. <laughs> uh, I have been whitewater kayaking since I've been about 12. Um, and like through college, I raced a bit and then still continue to paddle now. So is this kind of your dream job that unless you were going to be a professional kayaker or whatever a kayakist is called? <laughs> uh, yeah, this this has kind of been my dream job. I mean, when I was... I got super into it when I was in high school and was just kind of thinking like, what, what could I do as like a, a real job growing up and just kind of kept trying to specialize myself towards this. Cause there are only a couple companies in the U S that do it. I could sympathize with that. Cause I'm a bit slightly different. Whereas I kind of got into race car aero because I absolutely love uh, working on race cars um, and race cars and everything about them, except I'm not a very competitive driver, so I, I, and I'm, it's super expensive. So I'm not going to be racing them. So if I'm not racing them, I might as well be working on them. So uh, kind of a, a similar setup. Do you think your experience of paddling gives you a sort of unique? I mean, it's already there's not many people doing this, but you've you've got an extra sort of unique insight into into what you do. Yeah, I I really agree with that, and it seems like. The, the few other companies that do this type of work, they're either founded by paddlers or they're, um, they're design engineers or paddlers or just people who kind of have that experience. And I mean, 
Um, a lot of my kind of design inspiration comes from what I've seen on natural rivers and experienced myself. So you speak the language when you're talking to these people? Yeah, it's it's good to kind of be that mediator between like the hard science terms and then the kind of the recreational jargon of whatever sport you're in. Yeah, absolutely. So for those of us who don't kayak, can you paint us a picture of the kind of facilities and structures and things that we're, we're talking about here. Okay. Um, generally whitewater parks kind of come in two different flavors. Uh, the first would be like a, a static recreational feature where the, the feature itself is the main attraction where in an existing river, we would go in and kind of create these grouted boulder structures to create, um, a nice wave or kind of hydraulic jump um, over a range of flows. And this is done primarily because uh, several studies, economic impact analysis studies have shown that for communities who invest, it's like a couple million dollars, it creates an attraction that people travel to. And then those people come for the river feature itself, but then they also come and spend money in the town. So that's, the main driver for how a lot of these get built. So would that typically be in a, in a river that maybe doesn't have any features, if you like, certainly no white water? It can be. Um, oftentimes the most well-used or successful ones are ones in urban areas. Okay. Um, so for example, we just built one uh, just north of me on the front range in Fort Collins where an existing dam was taken out. And from the regulatory standpoint, um, when you remove that dam, you then kind of have that elevation to play with so we can redistribute that into recreational features that people will then want to use versus a potential uh, hazard. Sounds cool. And the other type that you were mentioning? The, the second main type is kind of a destination facility where it's, it's more of a, a concrete channel where large pumps circulate water continuously and it's just a, a closed loop system. It's not on a river, it can be kind of built anywhere. And then you're really only limited by the pumping costs or how much, what you want the experience to be like. And those facilities are often a bit more expensive up into the tens of millions of dollars, but you can often build like zip line facilities, mountain biking, and just create kind of an adventure center that a lot of people will want to travel to. Are they also the kind of thing that I might have seen on the Olympics? It is. Um, ah, okay. Yep. The The founder of the company I work for is a former Olympic athlete and then has helped uh, with the design of a few of the Olympic parks. Are you allowed to work at your place if you can't paddle? Uh, you are, but it seems like most of us are paddlers. <laughs> we don't discriminate, but uh, it seems like you do well if you kind of have that background. Do you do other kind of river engineering or is it just the, the recreational stuff? Uh, recreational is kind of the bread and butter, but we'll do kind of general stream restoration works or just more basic river engineering that's not necessarily as specialized. And is CFD, wi I mean, I, say, I was going to say, is CFD widely used in this sector? But I mean, widely used perhaps gives the, wrong, gives the impression that there's thousands of people doing this. In the companies that do do what you do, are they all using CFD to design their parks? It seems like they are, um, or it's 
it's become more recently adopted among the different companies, um, just as another tool in the toolbox to reduce uncertainty in the design. Right. Is that is that kind of the main the main driver? You, you're looking to sort of remove the risk from building one of these parks. You know that what you build's going to do what you think it's going to do. Exactly. There's there's a lot of uncertainty. Um, both in the, the construction method and then kind of your, your design methods. For those larger multi-million dollar projects, they'll often use a, a physical model, fruit-scaled physical model, because um, that kind of gets you the least uncertainty. Um, kind of what you see is what you get. And then CFD kind of has filled a void where for the smaller projects, if there wasn't budget for a physical model, oftentimes it was just done on like a, a 2D depth average model or, and then those oftentimes there would be quite a bit of tweaking once it was built to uh, get all the kinks worked out. So you mentioned a lot of it revolves around kind of simulating hydraulic jumps. What would you kind of class as the, the, the trickier bits of that? I mean, it sounds pretty tricky to me anyway, but what, what are the elements of that, that, um, that pose the most problems? Um, I mean, from a, Pure engineering problem standpoint, you're looking at multi-phase flow. Um, there's there's high gradients just in terms of you have high velocity with flow separation regions. Uh, you have aeration, which poses all kinds of problems, both for uh, physical and numerical models. And uh, turbulence, it's, it's highly turbulent, highly chaotic, and it's... it's Quite a quite a tricky problem. Do you have to kind of include all those elements to some extent, or are there some of them that you can kind of, in some models, you can set some bits of it aside? Maybe we won't look at this. Maybe we won't look at that. But or is it all in there all the time? It's all kind of in there to some extent. Aeration is the one that kind of gets thrown out the first, just first, just because you need an extremely fine mesh to accurately resolve like bubbles rising up through a column of water. And in a hydraulic jump, you'll just get this kind of washing machine uh, effect where it's just turbulent flow recirculating with high velocity. And to properly resolve that, at least with a numerical CFD model, you need a very fine mesh and that just isn't really practical for a lot of projects to get down to that level of detail. Just to kind of clarify in my mind, what are the kind of physical size of one of these models? What are we what are we talking about? Um, that it really kind of varies by the project size itself. Um, some of the the static parks features can be as few as one or two drops, or it might only be a hundred meters or so in length. Um, to some of the pump recirculating parks can have. <laughs> uh, like close to 15 different structures that can be over a kilometer or two kilometers long. Whoa. So the, the domain size can vary greatly and that just kind of varies project by project. So I've got a couple of stupid questions straight off the back of that. Um, would you model one jump and then model the other one with a, a different inflow condition or do you have to model the whole thing stacked up? I mean, the best practice is to model the whole thing stacked up as you put it just because the the shape of the hydraulic jump is highly dependent on the velocity profile coming into it 
So if you just kind of chop it upstream and downstream of each jump, there's quite a large uncertainty with is what you're simulating actually what's going to be in reality. So that what I've found is it's best to do, <laughs> as crazy as it sounds, one really large computational domain with a lot of refinement regions to step down to the level of detail you need to see. And then typically I'll run things on a coarse mesh just to initialize the flow and then kind of map that to a refined mesh just so it speeds up overall simulation time. I've got another stupid question for you. They keep coming. Um, I asked this in one of the other in the other interviews and I, I hope it makes sense. Are you chasing accuracy? Are you looking for absolute accuracy or are you looking to just to reduce risk to make sure that generally what you're doing is in the right direction and is heading towards something that's going to work or are you chasing down accuracy all the time? Generally, the approach is just to reduce risk. A lot of these natural river projects are built with grounded boulder clusters so that the surface I'm using for the CFD is just a nice kind of smooth planar face. And the reality is you're building it with rough jagged rocks that you don't know exactly what, what the size is going to be like. So claiming or chasing absolute accuracy isn't a good idea. Rather, I've found it's a good tool to kind of look at either the transient effects or sensitivity analysis to certain variables where it's easy in CFD to kind of vary, say, like the tailwater levels of each structure and then see the effect on the hydraulic jump so that if you get something that's undesirable, you then know which way you need to move to kind of correct it. Ah, that's really interesting. Okay, yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. And it's pretty much always at the design stage that we're talking about. You're not going in to try and fix structures that didn't work or we just early stage before the park's been built. Is that right? Um, not necessarily. Okay. Um, sometimes, I mean, because of the uncertainties with these projects and the construction method and then also the modeling methods, uh, typically there's kind of a tuning and adjustment phase. So like right after it's built, it will go in and just kind of tweak things. And that's where if we're seeing something that wasn't identified during the design phase, it's it's easy to run a simulation and kind of get an understanding of it. Because for me, it's, it's immensely useful to see the full 3D flow field to kind of get an idea of what the water's doing, um, which you don't really get in even a physical model unless you instrument, instrument it like crazy. Uh, so that's where it's, it's a very useful tool in that regard. You mentioned that it, it kind of comes into its own in these smaller projects that perhaps didn't have a budget for a, a physical model. Does that mean you don't do CFD in these sort of big budget projects where they have done a physical model? Is is it one, is it CFD or physical testing or do they come together at all? Uh, there can be a little overlap. Uh, CFD is a good tool to kind of preliminary vet the design prior to a physical model. And then the physical model can reduce the uncertainties from the CFD analysis even further so that you have a much better idea of what the finished product will look like. We should circle back and, and give an idea of what a what a model looks like. I mean, you've already talked about kind of physical 
dimensions. Um, uh, what solver tech are we using? Are we is it this a finite volume type approach or particle based or, or right now just kind of using open foam and the the interfoam solver so oh, okay. uh, volume of phase fluid method um, for just for air and fluid dynamics and then I mean I'll use kind of the detached eddy simulation but it really kind of varies based on how refined my mesh can get as far as wall functions and what makes sense. Okay, so you've got different resolutions of model depending on what you're looking at. Yeah, I mean, typically I'll, I'll try to get as fine resolution as possible just based on simulation times. Um, so like for those, just kind of finished a project now where there was close to a kilometer long channel and it, it took... 10 minutes of simulation time just to fill in a domain. Uh, so that one, I couldn't necessarily get as fine resolution as, say, something that's only a couple hundred meters just because if it, it takes more than, say, two weeks running, it, it's really hard to kind of iterate on that. I just want to make sure nobody missed that and either misunderstood that it took 10 minutes to solve. This is 10 minutes of flow time. And what was that? Uh, Two weeks on a... Two weeks. 48 core machine. You want to make sure you get that right. Yeah. Yep. So that one, that one's winning the current record winner for the, the largest and longest model. But we'll see what the future brings. Did it, did it turn out good? <laughs> it did. Yeah. Oh, you've got to be pleased. You've got to be pleased with that then. Yeah. I mean, it, it was exciting just from a, a modeling standpoint of look, this thing's so long and massive and was, we were able to get a result with it and kind of aid the design and we're kind of tweaking that right now what would be your rough estimate of how many times you checked on it during that couple of weeks <laughs> at least once a day uh partially just to make sure it didn't crash that's very restrained well at least right now i'm busy with a lot of other stuff so it's kind of easy to just get it running and then just check on it every now and then you mentioned open foam are these snappy hex mesh models or are you kind of hand crafting some beautiful mesh to go with it Yep, uh, just snappy hex mesh. Um, I mean, kind of my meshing workflow is ultimately the design is created as a surface in Civil 3D, and I just export that STL and then just block mesh, create the computational domain, and then snappy hex mesh to snap to it. At least for for my particular problem, it's not as important to get those surface layers just because I use refinement regions and I'm looking at more of a volume refinement than necessarily a surface refinement. Yeah, it makes sense. Are you looking at lots of different geometries or are you mainly looking at lots of different flow conditions perhaps if the river level's higher or lower or do you have to consider those? I do, um, especially for these natural rivers. I mean, if it rains, the river's going to go up. Um, if it drops down, it's going to get lower. So as the design engineer, you really need to have a good handle on what it's going to do over the potential range of flow conditions just so that you don't create something that's dangerous. Yeah, that's never a good idea. So, I mean, is that, that's just another element to throw in there of some, some added uncertainty, I guess. It is, yeah. And I mean, for these designs, essentially, if hydraulic jumps are creating a wave, you can really optimize it to a certain flow rate. And then the second it changes, it'll be really fickle and you might get something undesirable. Oh, do they kind of switch on and off with flow rate? They they can. Um, some of the projects we're doing now kind of feature adjustable head gates so that we can 
manipulate the water levels a little bit more just based on different flow conditions. Uh, so a little bit more consistent. Yep. But then that also leads into more transient analysis of your, you're moving the gate and what's the water going to do and how's it all work together. So what would you say the, the kind of the biggest uncertainties are that you have to deal with? Um, is it geometric or? Yeah. Geometric slash con- construction method. Um, ultimately we'll, we'll create some design surface and geometry, but again, we're, we're building it out of boulders that can be, you know, at least the smallest would probably just be a meter diameter. Um, so they can either be round, they can be angular. You, you don't really know until you're on site looking at what they're building it with. Oh, okay. Right. So the, it's not like you have scan data of a pile of boulders that you're going to drop in the river. No, I mean, that's kind of on my wish list just to try and quantify that uncertainty. But for right now, I just acknowledge it exists and, don't chase absolute accuracy. Yeah, like you said, yeah, it makes sense. With the meshing those those geometries, you were mentioning about how if you, people aren't familiar with snappy hex mesh and open foam, there are kind of known, I'll be kind, there's known issues around layering and, and what have you. Um, how do you deal with the mesh refinement? Because I guess you're having to refine free surfaces, especially if you're looking for capturing aeration and what have you, or is that, is that not necessary? Well, I'll use the, the volume refinement. I've looked at ah, okay. kind of the, the surface based like dynamic mesh refinement um, to get that better interface. But I mean, my experience is just because the domain's so long, if you're refining the whole surface for the whole domain, that just puts the mesh size astronomically yes, huge. Bananas. Yeah. So my experience has been just to use the volume refinements um, to really kind of step down three or four levels at the actual structure itself. Um, and that kind of gets uh, the best bang for your buck in terms of uncertainty for both free water surface and then kind of your velocity gradients and what the hydraulic jump's doing. Sometimes when I ask people in these interviews sort of what would make their CFD life a little easier. One of the ones that comes up repeatedly is they want more crunch power. Um, is that something that would be on your wish list or are you looking at you really want some kind of newfangled technique that would take advantage of any extra crunch power or take some of the headache away? Uh, yeah, I mean, if it could run faster at a finer mesh, that would make me happier. That sounds like a horsepower problem. Yeah, but I mean, looking at some of the benchmarks just for the, the transient multi-phase flow stuff, that just seems to scale weaker than like okay. some of the external aero stuff. So that's just kind of a function of this specific problem, or just multi-phase flow. Yeah. Coming around to sort of to different techniques, I mean, you're talking about the multi-phase flow. That seems like a, a candidate for maybe some of the particle-based methods or some of the GPU-accelerated even particle methods. Is that is that something that's even remotely possible, or are we talking about geometries that are not really suitable for that sort of thing? Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm very curious by SPH, uh, some of the SPH methods, um, just because reading some of the literature on it, like they're it seems to do really well in hydraulic jumps and just because of the, with the, the particles, you're modeling more of the collision dynamics than necessarily the grid continuum, 
So that that really intrigues me. And then it also kind of allows you to do some cool post-processing with either potential like spray or whitewater or foam particles, getting more into the, the rendering side. Oh, okay. You could kind of sometimes classify CFD post-pros as sort of a scientific if you like, post-pro, the, the colourful plots that we're all familiar with, and then the sort of the really flashy ones that almost look like computer um, computer games or computer graphics. Do you dabble in those, the uh, the higher-end visualisation, if you like? I have, just because, to me, it, it creates a really powerful image. And at least for the business I'm in, you're kind of selling this experience. So I think it is valuable to have a way to better visualize it or just kind of get some of those jaw dropping kind of looking effects. And I mean, I like there's a plugin for blender that has its own hydraulic model. I've messed around with a little bit, but you can even take that and render it in 360 so that you could throw on like a Google heart cardboard or headset and actually be in it and see what this would look like and look around in 360. Um, but that's just kind of a, a personal side project. But I think it could be useful down the road. So hang on a minute right there. We're we're going to put on Google Cardboard and then ride down your CFD simulation. Is that right? It could. I mean, it's possible. Oh. It's, it's, it totally is. And I mean, to me, it, it just seems as a really cool way that you could kind of share what this experience could be like. Because uh, oftentimes the people making the decisions on these projects aren't the paddlers themselves. So it kind of helps bridge the gap a little more. Yeah, that's really interesting. It's something that I, I've i seen uh, in some of the work that I do where quite often um, the guys are aerodynamicists. So they're, they're super familiar with a pressure plot or, um, well, any plot you might throw that at them. They're almost less interested in the flashy plots because they're, they're, they, they can understand the pressure plot and they want to be able to see that and make a decision based on that about what they're going to do next. Um I guess the people that you're dealing with, it doesn't work like that. And this, like this experience, this wow factor is super valuable. It is. Um, I, I agree. But then ultimately, at least internally, we need a good model that gives us reasonable uncertainty for the actual design itself. And those do kind of seem to be separate. Uh, there doesn't seem to be one solution that can do both, at least at this time. Is there anything that you've seen maybe in another field in an in a adjacent um, domain that you think, oh yeah, that I think that would be interesting for us? Mm, I mean, just the the rendering and visualization, I think, is where that's the main thing. Yeah, like at least in others, like or the like the augmented reality stuff, where you can kind of project your design on maybe like the actual site, or you could set up a model, show what the river could look like. And then you look around and you get the interface between the two. That'd be kind of neat. It really would, wouldn't it? How long did it take to build these things? Come back in a few months and then ride it yourself. So linking back to some of my experience with the race cars again, it although I'm never likely to drive it or anything like that, but when I see a car that I've had something to do with um, win or win a championship or, or do well, um, you, you feel really invested in it and, and what have you. You must get a similar feeling when you do you get to ride these parks after they after they're done and then when they work as you thought they might and what you saw on your screen turns out to be awesome to paddle that must be a great feeling oh yeah i mean it's it's incredibly rewarding just from my passion for whitewater and paddling which started far before i started working here Uh, so 
It is. It's really awesome once something's built and it's functioning great. And then, yes, I do get to uh, either get out there before it's open to the public to like test it or tune it. And then even then, once it's open, it's awesome just to see other people really enjoying it and using it. Because I've, I've been involved in plenty of projects where I've never seen the thing that I've been working on either before or after, and it's only existed as a little CFD model on my screen. Um, and for for people who work in that scenario, it must be... We're, we're green with every at that, being able to go out and uh, play, I guess. Ah, uh, yeah, that that would be tough. But yes, it is nice to, to see it in real life and what, yeah, how people like it, how it's perceived. I mentioned at the start that there probably aren't many people doing this. So I think that everybody who's listening to this episode is going to have sort of learned a bit. We don't go too deep into it, but to sort of even get a taste that people are doing these kind of simulations on this kind of application and having real success with it, I, it's really kind of eye-opening. Thanks for taking the time, Kurt, to come on and, and tell us about it. If If people want to get in touch with you guys either at the business or you personally to to talk about something that they've heard in the show can they is there a good way for them to reach out to you uh sure yeah i can uh give you my contact info and you can put it in the show notes yeah that would be perfect maybe catch you on linkedin or, or something like that seems to be the place at the moment yep yep i try to be active on there and kind of post the latest cool stuff i'm working on awesome Um, again thanks for taking the time to come on the show Kurt I really appreciate it yep thanks for having me this was awesome